Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. I'm Stephen. And I'm Daniel. And today we continue our first 500-year series with our second part on women in the early church. Uh, before we get into it, though, be sure to subscribe to the channel, um, like the video, and leave us some comments as well. And tap the bell for notifications when a new episode drops. That's right. So, last time when we talked about women in the early church, we went through some of the functions that women are playing in the early Christian communities as this movement is spreading um, from Judea out into the, the broader empire. And we're, even some surprising roles came up, right? We had um, women who are listed, who are referred to as apostle, um, women who are, you know, hosting the gathering um, of the Eucharist. Um, some women, like the daughters of Philip, are considered prophetesses. Uh, you have evangelists, um, widows, virgins. So there's a lot of different... Um, influential roles that, that women are playing in these communities. Um, but there was one, one function that we specifically did not mention, right, Dan? Yeah, and that was the, uh, the role of um, diakonos or, or deacon, and then um, the role of uh, presbyteros. And right. so uh, we, we left off, I think, part one, uh, mentioning the name Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe is one of those um, interesting... Uh, personalities in the early church, even though we only hear of her one time. <laughs> but there's there's a couple of words that are used of Phoebe that make her very interesting to a lot of historians, especially modern historians, um, uh, with the, the bent to argue for women's uh, ordination, um, not just to the diaconate, but to the, to the priesthood as well. Um, so Phoebe is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, so I'll just give us a little read, and then we'll, uh, we'll talk about it. Okay. So in St. Paul's letter to the Romans, uh, chapter 16, he writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Cancrea, so that you may welcome her in the Lord, as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many, and of myself as well. Um, so the two words, obviously we're speaking of uh, the reference to deacon there or servant, diakonos, is used of Phoebe. But we'll go to the, the, latter, um, the latter word, benefactor, first. Uh, very important word there, uh, which shows forth kind of Phoebe's influence in the, in the early church. Um, this is more of a technical term in the Greek, prostatis, which uh, really can be translated as patron. And so those who know something about Greco-Roman patron-client system um, that's ingrained in society... Uh, to kind of be that web that that holds really culture together without uh, having a middle class to do that for you. Um, mm -hmm. So it's really that the the, the clients uh, are are attached to their to their patrons, and the patrons offer protection and opportunity for the for the clients, who are usually lower class, uh, lower status, or poor um, citizens. But here it's used. Uh, Prostatis is used of, of Phoebe, and it says not only was she a um, a, a benefactor or a patron to uh, many of the Christ, early Christians, but also to Paul himself, as Paul mm -hmm. says. So uh, clearly, Phoebe is a woman of of some means because she's able to monetarily support the church and offer opportunity to other Christians um, in a very uh, public way. So for that reason, Phoebe is important to the early church. Uh, movement because clearly she's supporting the 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 wider mission. Yeah, and and we also had mentioned last time about um, 
widows, right, and the kind of wealth that could be accumulated, um, it's easy for us to like to just pass over the fact that you know Saint Paul is going on missionary journeys. And remember that it's not just Saint Paul, but I mean Paul mentions so many people throughout his letters that are traveling around the empire to evangelize. Well, that costs money. <laughs> it costs money mm-hmm. to to do those things. Um, so to have wealthy patrons of those journeys is vital. It's vital to the mission of the church, which mm-hmm. presumably a lot of these wealthier widows, these wealthier women are are part of that pool of sponsorship for these these journeys. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so, so clearly Phoebe is um, important to the church uh, generally as, as a missionary, but seriously important to St. Paul because it's St. Paul who entrusts Phoebe with perhaps, scholars think, the, the, the very letter to the Romans. So Paul writes, pens mm-hmm. his letter to send to Rome, and he gives it to Phoebe to, to act as representative um, to the Roman church, which kind of gets into... Uh, uh, diakonos here. So in the letter to the Romans and elsewhere in St. Paul's letters, the word is uh, mostly used uh, in a non-technical sense. And that's why a lot of translators of the Bible will just translate it as a minister or as a servant of the mm-hmm. church um, there. And there's there's good reason to also think of it in those terms uh, for this reference to Phoebe. You know, I think whenever we see the word deacon, we think automatically, okay, liturgical role, you know, somebody who reads the gospel, who assists at the altar, that whole thing. Um, Perhaps not yet in this early stage. We have to remember that the letter to the Romans is written in the late uh, 50s. Um, But Paul, in the letter to the Romans, uses the same word, diakonos, um, uh, three or four other times, and it's used in that general sense. In, in mm-hmm. fact, it's used in to um, it's used in reference to Jesus himself, Jesus as a as a servant. Um, so it seems to have a non technical sense here, but it doesn't mean it didn't have a function or a role. And what you see here with Phoebe, uh, why is she referred to as a deacon? Probably has to do something with the role of emissary um, mm-hmm. or missionary, because it it seems pretty often throughout the New Testament, Saint Paul is using the word in the context of either missionary work or as an emissary, somebody who, who carries a message uh, from St. Paul to other churches, perhaps. Uh, we also see actually a little bit of that in uh, Ignatius of Antioch. I was just going to say that, yeah. Yeah, in the early 2nd <laughs> century. We're brothers, we, we know we're going to... Um, in the early 2nd century, where he has deacons coming to him, and he, he recognizes the bishop or the church um, through that deacon. He, uh, mm-hmm. he says so. That kind of uh, emissary work is certainly one of the roles that that deacons were fulfilling and continue to fulfill from the time of Phoebe all the way up until the time of Ignatius of Antioch, the early second century. But 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 a good example of this, I, I would um, point us to Saint Paul's letter to Colossians, where we we say that we see the same exact usage uh, for this. And and here Saint Paul is. Um, referring to Tychicus, his, his, his brother in the faith. He says in Colossians 4.7, uh, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a beloved brother and a faithful deacon and a fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So again, he's sending Tychicus, refers to him as a deacon. 
He's, he's carrying, perhaps, again, Paul's letter or some kind of word of encouragement from St. Paul to the church in uh, Colossae. Right. So really now, similar context to, to Phoebe. Right. But um, when you come to some of these, you know, the, the school of scholars that say that um, it's possible that um, women were, were performing the presbyteral function or the diaconal function as we, as we later would understand, especially like as we understand that in the letters of, of St. Ignatius, um, they'll zero in on this though, right? That, that the word diaconos is in the masculine, right? And, and they'll, they'll yeah. use that as kind of a springboard for their ultimate argument, which is that women were fulfilling the, the function of the presbyterate as well. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. So that that would be, I guess, in in my opinion, would be this um, one of the stronger arguments for uh, from a historical perspective, a historian make trying to make an argument for right. women in in the presbyterate. So the argument would be that since Phoebe is referred to in the masculine, we can't assume that wherever presbyters are referred to, also in the masculine throughout the New Testament, we can't assume that it only means men. Because, of course, throughout the New Testament, um, presbyteros, the masculine form of the word, is used all over the place. Um, and so, but it's never used of of anyone um, specifically, which which I would, which we would challenge, right? Because, of course, St. Peter uses it of himself. He says, I'm, I'm a fellow elder. So that's a male, obviously. And then, um, and then, um, John the well, Elder. Yeah, John the Elder. Yeah. <laughs> so the letters of John in the New Testament, uh, he's he calls himself the Elder, the pre- the Presbyter, John the Presbyter. Um, so there are people in the New Testament who are um, referred to specifically as presbyters, and they happen to be male. Mm-hmm. Um, so so the argument then is almost kind of an argument from from silence, really, because we just have to can't we can't assume that every time presbyteros is used, then it means only only males. Yeah, yeah. I think this is a good time to to name some good sources for people to go to for the argument for women in the presbyterate in this this very early early phase. So it'd, um, it'd be women office holders in early Christianity by Ut Eisen, and then um, ordained women in the early church: a documentary history, and that's by Kevin Madigan and Carolyn Osik. So um, those are, I mean, it's fair to say, right, that those are the two, those are the two definitive uh, yeah, because, works. And I, right. Yeah, there's, there's others, obviously, in the past that were written, uh, but these two are the most uh, recent, and these two are the, are the ones that you'll see scholars footnote the most. You know, right. like in, in passing, they'll say, oh, there may have been women presbyters in the early church, and they'll footnote these two books or you know, something. Yeah, like yeah, and, and, and the I think it's the two works, too, that are kind of like the least polemical in a way. Like, I, I um, you know, like there's obviously Karen Torgensen's, uh book, When Women Were Priests. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, <laughs> I don't know, there, there's something about books uh, written in that vein that just don't seem to... to st- to stick to historical discipline as closely, whereas these two works actually kind of do. And, well, I would say, especially Kevin Madigan's and Carolyn Osick's uh, book, uh, the second one that we mentioned, uh, they are very, very fair and balanced. And they'll they'll tell you when they think um, other books are kind of pushing the limit on the evidence mm-hmm. and those types of things. So, yeah, uh, from a scholarly perspective, 
um, uh, two good secondary sources on this on this topic. Yeah. So okay. So so one of the first stronger arguments then being that you know Deacon is in the male when it's used at Phoebe. Uh, Phoebe's obviously a woman, so therefore, whenever we see presbyteros in the male, we can't assume that it's only talking about yeah. men. All right, so that's yeah. that's the first argument. Um, the other thing that they bring up in, in the book too is um, they say that you know we don't really know. They kind of lean into the idea that that these offices are very um, ill-defined, fluid, very fluid, yeah. very ill-defined. Um, so they say that like well, we don't actually know what presbyters did in the communities like the, the new Testament texts are that um, nebulous about these roles. So we can only assume then what we do know is that they were leaders mm-hmm. of communities in some way. Mm-hmm. So therefore all we need to do then is find women acting in positions of leadership in the new Testament texts. Um, and there, right, which, which can be anybody from, um, Mary <laughs> to mm-hmm. to whomever we've mentioned before to, to Nympha to John John Mark's mother, um, mm-hmm. you know. There's plenty of quote unquote leaders in the New Testament. Yeah. So <clears throat> so therefore, if women are performing functions as leaders, they were likely also performing functions as presbyters within the uh, within the communities. Yeah. And and especially sorry, <coughs> especially when you look at um, you know Nympha Junia. Mary, the mother of John Mark, you know, these people are mentioned as hosting the gathering in their homes. You know, mm-hmm. J- Junia, like we said, is, is referred to as an apostle. So, you know, to them, it's like, well, that sounds like leadership to me. You know, if you can be called an apostle, why the heck can you be called a, a presbyter? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, so I'd say those are probably like the two strongest arguments coming right out of the gate, right? For them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and except, uh, save that, that, that no one's ever, no woman is ever referred to as a presbyter, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately for their argument. Uh, so it's it's tough to to um, go beyond just saying those two things. Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, wherever we do have hard evidence where somebody is named a presbyter, it's going to be a it's going to be a male. And mm-hmm. then and then even these scholars um, admit that by the time you come to the era of St. Ignatius of Antioch and move into the second century, the era we're in, it is highly, highly unlikely, this is them saying it, highly mm-hmm. unlikely that females occupied uh, the pres- presbyterate. Yeah. Um, and if they did, it, it would have been so super rare and probably not even sanctioned. Um, mm-hmm. So what? So it begs the question, what What time frame are we really talking about then? Right. Right. Um, because we know that by the end of the first century, the New Testament itself has only males in view when it comes to speaking about the episcopate. And we know that the New Testament uses the words episcopos and presbyteros interchangeably in many, many instances. I'll, I'll give us one. Mm-hmm. So um, Titus, St. Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 1. Verse 5, he says, I left you behind in Crete for this reason, so that you would put in order what remained to be done and should appoint presbyters in every town as I directed you. Someone who was blameless, married only once, and actually it's husband of one wife. So, you know, right. yeah. elders <laughs> elders are male because they're husband, they're husband of one wife, mm-hmm. whose children are believers, not accused of debauchery, not, not rebellious. And then it says, 
for a bishop, as God's stewards, must be blameless. So mm-hmm. clearly what, what's being shown there, what might actually be happening in the, in the first century into the second century, is that you had um, you have this curious situation where presbyters and bishops are, are being referred to interchangeably. Sometimes you'll, you'll see bishops being referred to in the singular. Sometimes you'll be, see bishops being referred to in the plural. One way to kind of solve that interesting situation is to surmise that perhaps the presbyterate worked on a circuit. So go back to our, you know, our temple discussions and those types of things we've, we've had in past episodes. You see, kind of see where I'm going with this. Um, the, the temple priests worked on circuit. It's not like if you were a, a Jewish priest, a son of, Le, a son of Aaron, that you were always in the temple. It's like, no, there were seasons there. I think there were four circuits. There were seasons for when you would be in, in the temple and act as a temple priest. The same thing happened with the high priesthood. The high priesthood rotated within the family um, and moved on to somebody else. So <clears throat> what might be happening in the early church in imitation of the temple was that you had the presbyterate council and from within that presbyterate council, one would act as the bishop. Okay, one was act as the episcopos. And so you could see how St. Paul, for example, if he's speaking to a group of presbyters, could refer to them as bishops. Mm-hmm. Because they all, at one time or another, may in fact serve as the presider, as the bishop. Because, of course, what does episcopos mean? It means one who oversees, one who guards, one who... Captain, chief. Yeah, captain, yeah. chief. Uh, and so you have to ask yourself, what? Well, what are they chiefing? <laughs> mm-hmm. What are they? What are they captain of? Uh, of course, it's of the assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and so, the bishop is is somebody who presides over the assembly. Uh, in fact, in the Didache, another late first century document, you have the language of the bishop sits in the place of honor, or or is in the place of honor. Now, recall in our episode on first century liturgy. The place of honor was in the middle of the table, the one who presides over the over the meal. So the so in the New Testament, the bishops are referred to as males. Presbyters are used presbyter also is uh, um, used interchangeably with bishop, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so you'd have to assume that the pool of presbyters would also be be male. Okay, now some who who perhaps don't agree with our canon or liberal scholars who don't care about the canon, they'll say, well, yeah, that all of that occurs in the pastoral epistles. That occurs in later documents of the New Testament. Uh, Paul, Pauline texts that maybe weren't, in fact, written by St. Paul. Okay, of course they have to say that. Um, <laughs> right? Uh, the problem with that is these are the only texts where these titles start to show up, though. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? And And so, okay... So what, what, what are we really saying then? My point is this. The argument from silence is really only an argument for silent, from silence for the first, what, 20, maybe 30 years of the church's existence. Yeah. And then by the time you come to the late first century and then certainly into the second century, there clearly are no um, women, uh, men, male presbyters are assumed by the church. So <clears throat> it, it, it seems... Uh, to me, as a historian, highly, highly unlikely 
uh, that there were women presbyters in the early church, and as a historian, the arguments for women presbyters in the early church is highly, highly suspect. You wouldn't, those kind of arguments, arguments from silence, wouldn't stand the litmus test of good history and good historiography on any other topic. Any other text, man. No. (laughs) Any other text, except (laughs) only with the Bible. (laughs) It's like, those, those are arguments that make you think, right? Oh, okay, that's interesting. But where's the evidence is, is what the historian would keep coming back to. Yeah. Where's the hard evidence? And that was the, that was the conclusion of the, the Pontifical Biblical Commission in 1975. They had, they had, you know, a huge team of all kinds of scholars, all kinds of stripes, um, coming together, you know, on, on questions like this, on this question. And they basically said that an argument solely based on scripture for the ordination of women would at best be inconclusive. Um, because the new Testament record in many ways is difficult to ascertain what's going on on the ground. Um, though it is actually discernible that, that on the whole, the texts assume that these roles are reserved for men. Um, so that, that is what, that is what they concluded as well. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. But here's the other thing I'll say too. The the other part of the argument is that, you know, liberal scholars kind of helped by Protestants, they actually have a a skin in the game against the, against the church when they're, when they're speaking on this topic. Um, and they're helped by Protestants in this way. Protestants have done all kinds of scholarship arguing against the existence of the priesthood in the early church. That, that, and, and they argue that the, the church did not see themselves, presbyters in the early church did not see themselves um, as priests in the first and second centuries. And that's something that develops down the road. Yeah. And so then the, the liberal scholar swoops in and says, yeah, you know, how can we, how can we say that women weren't part of the presbyterate when the sacrificial cult hasn't even developed and the priesthood hasn't even, even developed because it's with the development of priesthood in the early church that women are then excluded and barred from the mm-hmm. presbyterate. But mm-hmm. if but if but if that isn't the case, if 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 we can show that priesthood is there since the beginning, well then that argument as well can be thrown out. Well that that to me gets to the crux of the argument, right? So basically what we what we have is a situation where we're extracting the texts from their Hebraic, you know, mindset from their Hebraic context, which which Christianity is coming up out of, and we're acting as though just the texts themselves can convey, you know, the the truth about. Well, the that's a curious the, thing. The, the that's the curious thing, though, isn't it? It's it's always curious in in this kind of scholarship. The, those who um, are pro ordination to the priesthood for women, um, they they never dig into the Hebrew context no, of they words. They, they'll usually start to lean into the Greco-Roman context of like, you know, the meal context, these kinds of things. But, but ultimately we know, and, and I think our channel has been demonstrating all, all the way through up till now that the proper understanding of what is happening in early Christianity is the temple. It's all about temple. I mean, Jesus is, even Jesus' own mission doesn't make any sense without priesthood and temple. The whole story of the Old Testament is a story about the priesthood. Um, so, I mean, let's talk about that. So, yeah. in, the early, in, the, in the earliest texts that we have of, of the Old Testament, um, and what we know anthropologically, I mean, anthropology, biblical anthropology, um, about 
the Near East in the time of, let's say, Abraham and the patriarchs, okay? Priesthood was something that was associated with rulership of the clan and fatherhood specifically. So Abraham is a priest. Why? Because he's the father of the clan. <laughs> it's like he is the priest. Um, it's right. not there's like no, somebody... there's no ordination. There's no ordination ceremony in the Old Testament for the patriarchs. Exactly. It, it's yeah. it's all based on clan leadership, and that's why the promise goes from Abraham to the next one, and to the next one, and to the next one as the clan gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, yeah. So that's why Abraham, when he's when he's wandering around, he can just sacrifice the Lord. Because he is a priest. Only a priest offers sacrifice. So he can sit there and, and ought, literally offer sacrifice to the Lord because on the, the very virtue of being a, a ruler father of the clan. Yeah. Um, now, of course, fast forward as time goes on, that, that pool gets bigger and bigger. Like when God establishes you know, the nation. Now you have all of the, the elders of the clans that are the priests, the elders of Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, now, eventually, with the fall or, uh, it, that happens with the, the worship of the golden calf, you have this, the priesthood actually ends up being reserved to the Levites because they were the only ones who kind of stood by Moses. So, it's so, like by, so by it, right. it, it, it kind of collapses into the Levites. Right. It narrows. Um, but then as time goes on, you move into the, the time of the kingdom. Well, that's what the king is too, right? The, the, the king is the ruler of the people. He's the father of the nation. And so he is a king priest. Fast forward more. Now you start to have the parsing out of that. Where you have high priest and you have a king. You know, um, but that's when you also start to see the whole purpose of the Old Testament is that, of the prophets. They start to say that they're looking forward to the Anointed One. We're looking forward to this reintegration of the King, the Father of the nation, and the priesthood. Right. So that becomes the hope, the messianic hope. Yeah. Hence, why enter in Jesus. You know, we have him as the high priest again of the clan, according to the order of Melchizedek, right? That Abrahamic, uh, primitive clan leadership type of priesthood. And that's why, that's why all throughout ancient Israel, man and priest are synonymous, you know? And, and it's this, it's this sense of there's the, the domestic father of the family is a priest, but then you also have this um, official cultic priesthood where the fathers of the clans, the fathers of the nation, um, are the priests. And so let's just survey, like, some text so that people understand what we're talking about. So, like, when you go back to, like, Exodus, right? Exodus 3.18. It says, They will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey to the wilderness that we may sacrifice unto the Lord. So you can see that the elders of Israel are the ones who sacrifice. They are the priests, right? And you'll see that all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Septuagint, you know. Um, they're going to use a different word for elder in the Septuagint than they, that ends up being used in the New Testament, but it is the same word because even when you see the New Testament referring back to Old Testament text, they're using presbyter, right? So um, you see this in Luke 22, 66, 71 through, through 71. Um, where it says, when day, when day came, the assembly of the presbyters of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. Okay, so there's direct correlation. Again, yep. in Acts chapter 4, see the same thing, where it says, and it came to pass on the next day that their rulers 
their presbyters and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest gathered at Jerusalem. And then Peter, when he's filled with the Holy Spirit, he says, rulers of the people and presbyters of Israel, talking to the priests. Talking to the priests, yeah. Um, so you see, you see over and over, and then you, and then you come to, I mean, gosh, Revelation is probably the biggest one, right? Revelation chapters four and five. In Revelation chapter four, you see the, the, a, th- a throne scene in heaven where around the throne are 24 thrones and 24 elders seated on them. But the, el- the presbyters are clothed presbyters. in white garments in this temple scene, right? Mm-hmm. And in chapter five, they're seen as offering bowls of incense in the temple, only priests can do that, right? And especially dressed as dressed in white. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, which shows clearly shows you that in in New Testament lingo, um, presbyter and priest are synonymous. They're synonymous ideas behind that word. There. Yes. yes. Um, I, what I what I would submit here is is also um, the evidence of our Roman canon. So, those of you who are familiar with Eucharist Prayer One, that's the ancient Roman canon. In the ancient Roman canon. Who do we reference when we're referencing our priests' priesthood? Mm-hmm. It's Abel, Abraham, and Melchizedek. Right. So as Catholics, we don't trace our priesthood to the Jewish priesthood of the Second Temple. That's not where mm-hmm. our priesthood comes from. Our priesthood comes from Abel, Abraham, Melchizedek. And that's right. the priesthood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, so we're not part of the Jewish priesthood, I think is an, um, an important point to make. Well, and there's another layer that gets added to that in the prophets, you know, with the, the famous prophecy of Malachi, right? That the Gentiles from east to west, we mentioned that as well in the Roman canon, that from east yeah. to west, a perfect offering will be made to the glory of your name. They're, they're, they're talking about Malachi, is it Malachi 1, something, 111, yeah. But um, it's there that he prophesies that that the Gentiles will even be the ones making sacrifice to God. I mean, Gentiles acting as priests <laughs> unto yeah. God. And the, and the and the point there is that our the priesthood of the church harkens back to the most ancient priesthood, right? Of the most ancient Hebrews, of the most ancient peoples, all the way back to the priest Adam in the garden. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes a. Um, a theological principle, you know, kind of down the road that we say that, you know, priests are male because Christ was male. So if Christ is a male and the priest is in persona Christi, therefore, you know, I would actually, as a more from a historical standpoint, I'd kind of flip that and, and say that the reason why Christ is a male is because priests are male, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's a prior understanding of priesthood that exists in Hebrew thought and Hebrew anthropology that, that, uh, there's a blood work that needs to be done in society. Everyone has a blood work that has to happen. This is from the work of Dr. Alice yeah. Lindsley, right? She, she does a great job of demonstrating this, that the blood work of, of, of man was to take life, whether that was something as primitive and, and, and normal as going out to hunt, right? <laughs> to kill the animal. Um, or whether it was in the temple, right? Or in, in the tent of meeting, they, they shed blood for on behalf of the community. Well, the women's blood work was seen as giving life to the community. So like childbirth was a blood work of women. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and on top of all the other types of fluid work too, there's a lot that goes yeah. into that too. I mean, even, you know, even breastfeeding and all these things, giving life is sort of the function of the female in the community. So, so this, this thing is that, that priest, man, elder, ruler, father, father. all of these things are synonymous uh, in Hebrew in Hebrew yeah, understanding. And, and so you right. can understand why the earliest Christians focused in on that term. They didn't they didn't use the term rabbi for their exactly. for their leaders. Exactly. The, There's the, a reason the why the synagogues were term. doing that as yeah. There's a reason they chose the word elder. And it's for all the reasons that we've been we've been talking about. Um, that's yeah. why they're using uh, presbyter. And well and even more significant too is is that um, this seems to be one of the only roles that the early Christians reserved for men, right? So it shows right. you that they think yeah. something about the presbyterate a little bit differently than they think about, say, evangelist, teacher, even, well, I'll submit, okay, deacon, um, y you name it, right? The, the prophetess. <laughs> so, yeah. but you don't see, pres you know, you don't see a woman presbyter. Yeah. Um, and, and I would submit that the reason is because they see this as the priesthood, and the and the work of a priest is the work of a man um, by definition. It's it is it is as much. Let's put it this way: it is as much synonymous to them, man, father, elder, ruler, priest, as to us, man and husband are, right? Well, yeah. So as much as a yeah, well, yeah, as much as a, a woman could be a husband, that's how much a woman could be a priest in the eyes exactly. of the early church. Yeah. Which well, and, and, and this is why the domestic priesthood is even referred to again when we come to the New Testament, when you, when you look at uh, 1 Timothy, right? Or is it 2 Timothy? Yeah. 2 Timothy? 1 Timothy. No, 1 Timothy. Let me see. Yeah. yeah. 1, 1 Timothy, Timothy 3? Yep, yep. 1 Timothy 3, 4. That's when he says that um, to be, right, an episcopos, to be one of these, these presbyters, these elders of the community— um, he first has to show that he's able to rule his household as a priest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Saying he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so uh, in a manner fully, fully worthy of respect. If anyone doesn't know how to manage his own family, his own household, how can he rule the church of God? Yeah, you see, in the reconstituted Israel, the church, the, the new tribe, the new family, um, that is a third race, basically. The Christians refer to themselves as the third race. They're, mm -hmm. they're a new people, and they're a new family, and there's a new fatherhood to that family that harkens back to that ancient uh, fatherhood that's there. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's, not a, it's not a family like the Old Testament where it was, it was, it was uh, about blood. Um, yeah. this, is a, this is a family where um, you're brought in you know, by baptism. You know, it's, it's recognizing that uh, the family clan is no longer defined by this bloodline, but it's defined by baptism and identification with Christ's death and so, resurrection. And since you're in First Timothy, a couple of comments on First Timothy before we... Um, the other, that's the, so First Timothy is where um, we can clearly see, along with the letter to Titus, where um, bishops are male. So the male pronouns are being used of those who fulfill the office of, of bishop. But it's also interesting, um, if you go and read... 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, he does mention presbytera in that chapter. Here's how it goes. He says, Do not rebuke an older man harshly, presbyteros, but exhort, exhort him as if he were your father. 
treat younger men as brothers, older women, presbytera, as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Here's what I find interesting. Presbytera is a known term to St. Paul, the, the writer of 1 Timothy. And he uses it here. And then what immediately comes to his mind, you can tell, is the very next topic. And the very next topic is widows. <laughs> and we've already mentioned widows in the first episode, how important widows were in the earliest church. Two mm -hmm. kinds of widows. Widows who actually needed the support of the church and widows who supported the church through mm -hmm. prayer and teaching, those, all those functions. So when St. Paul thinks of older women, when he thinks of presbytera, he doesn't think of those who rule over the congregation. He thinks immediately of the widows, those mm -hmm. who rule over the women and the children and have a teaching role in the church and a praying role in the church. That's who he thinks of. Um, and then what's further, in, further um, interesting is that in verse 17, he goes back to use the word presbyteros, but this mm -hmm. time he's using it in the technical sense. Speaking of those who rule over the church well are worth double honor, especially those who are preaching and teaching in the church. So St. Paul, and the, or the writer of First Timothy, is able to distinguish between presbyteros and presbyteros, mm -hmm. and he could have distinguished between presbytera and presbytera, but he doesn't. His mind immediately goes from presbytera to widow, and older man to older men who rule well, who are rulers in the church. Mm-hmm. Right, I think that's important. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, and this this use of the, of go ahead, what were you saying? Take it, take it. Yeah, I was, I, I was <laughs> I was just gonna say that um, moving out of the new the, the New Testament texts into the into the second century. Oh wait, wait, that's what I want to do too. Oh, you want to do that? <laughs> so I was just gonna go. Th I was just gonna go through other um, instances of of synonymous. Like, so where is presbyter used synonymously with priest? Well, I guess we're gonna have to do like rock paper scissors for it. I don't know what we're gonna do. <laughs> oh, you were gonna. You're, that's what you were gonna do. Yeah, it was. No, go ahead. Oh, okay, go ahead. Go. You do it. No, well, you do it better than I do. No, before I leave the. <laughs> well, I want to do it because before you said second century, but before you leave the sec, uh, first century, there's the Didache, right? Mm -hmm. So in the in the Didache, um, uh, priest and presbyter are also used synonymously. Really, it's it's bishop and, and priest are used synonymously. So if you look in um, Didache, I think it's 13 and 14, chapters 13 and 14, it's talking about how the prophets, the office of prophet, and those folks who are itinerant um, prophets in the church, they are your high priests. That's what mm -hmm. the Didache says. So So the prophets are your high priests. Then in chapter 15, it now starts to talk about the sedentary offices of bishop and deacon, those who actually rule over a church and not are, they're not itinerant. Mm -hmm. And it says to show them honor because they hold the function of the prophet. So in other words, right. the, the function of high priest. Um, mm -hmm. So episcopos and priesthood are being linked together in the Didache. Now you're allowed to go. Now you're no, allowed I, to go to this. I was just saying the, 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 the sacrificial um, nature of the gathering too, in, in general. I think we we can't forget that. It's it's the fact that they're even saying like bringing your first fruits to the feet of the prophets and laying it before them. The the, the, the sac this sacrificial cult has continued 
You know, it, the church, when it gathers together, is not just gathering informally, like we've mentioned before, you know, to have a potluck with, like, the old men, right, and the overseer. Hey there, bud. Like, it's... Yeah. They're, <laughs> they're gathering... Um, they're gathering as a as a cultic per perpetuation and instantiation of the fulfilled temple cult, right? So it, it's it, it, and and all th up and down the Didache, you see that you know that that um, he's saying that your sacrifice may be pure and um, and all these different things. They're obviously bringing offerings, okay? So um, that they would see the elders of the people in all of these cities as priests and therefore men. Um, is is obvious if you're if it, you're putting yourself in their actual mindset instead of trying yeah. to foist upon them a 21st century mindset and concern. Right. You know? Right. It's also the dedicate where it uses male pronouns for the episcopos for the for the yeah. bishop and yeah, the deacons much actually, and point. the deacons as well. Actually. Right. Yeah. Um. But but so but you know so then you have you can move to what first Clement. Mm -hmm. Chapter so, forty through like forty two. Yeah. 43, yeah. Well, forty. Yeah, forty through forty-four, really, because it's in. Yeah. Um, it's in forty-four where we get the first sense of liturgical function for presbyt pre um, presbyters. So you mentioned earlier how some scholars will argue, well, we don't know what presbyters were doing in the early church. We don't know what actual function they had. Mm. Well, Clement, first Clement, tells us that. And again, first Clement is a first-century document. Um, and it was a part of scripture for many early Christians. But it's it's there in chapter 44 where Clement says that the, presby the presbyters are those who, quote-unquote, offer the gifts in a holy and blameless manner. So mm -hmm. we know he's referring to the Eucharist, to the ones who offer the Eucharist um, in a blameless way. Those are the presbyters. So we do have liturgical function um, and, um, and, and uh, um, presidency over, over the Eucharist. Yeah, and he uses an he, he uses an analogy which which, I mean, I would argue is a little more than an analogy. Um, it's a strong analogy. We'll put it that it's not a weak one. It's a strong analogy. But he says, um, he's talking about uh, Christ, right? So therefore, these things are now clear to us, and we have searched into the depths of the divine knowledge. That we ought to do in order everything that the Master has commanded us to perform at the appointed times. Now, he commanded the offerings and services to be performed diligently and not to be done carelessly or in disorder, but at designated times and occasions, both where and by whom he wants them to be performed. He himself has determined by his supreme will so that all things, being done devoutly according to his good pleasure, may be acceptable to his will. Those, therefore, who make their offerings at the appointed times are acceptable and blessed. For those who follow the instructions of the master can't go wrong. For to the high priest, the proper services have been given. To the priests, the proper office has been assigned. And upon the Levites, the proper ministries have been imposed. The layman is bound by the layman's rules. Let each of you brothers give thanks to God with your own group. Maintain, and it goes on and on. with the, So it's he's referring to the Old Testament services, you know, in the Old Testament. But he's using those as a direct analogy for what they're doing in mm -hmm. in, right. in their in their gatherings so he's yeah. even he's he even is it a, is it any wonder why he even ends on three high priests the priests and the levites, and the levites. he's got <laughs> he's got to find three <laughs> yeah. and then he says oh and then the laymen you know you have your own rules so he's literally using old testament you know categories to describe what's going on in their yeah. communities in their yeah. assembly yep 
and he uses yeah. the word priest, right? So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so there's this um, th- there's this thinking among some scholars, uh, mostly Protestant scholars, uh, and then obviously liberal scholars who want to knock down the priesthood in the early church and say it's a later third century development. Okay, so we already traced out the first century. Okay, we we're seeing how presbyter is being used synonymously with with priesthood. If you move to the to the second century, you see the the same exact thing. Um, you see it in and actually this is a source that people don't wouldn't often refer to, but a Gnostic source. So I would push people to the Gospel of Judas. It's a um, mid second century uh, source, and in this source, um, you have. Actually, Judas is kind of the hero. He's he's almost like the Peter of the Gospel of Judas. He actually knows the true um, progeny of Jesus. He knows the, where Jesus truly comes from. He has all the secrets, that type of thing. Um, but there's this episode in in the Gospel of Judas right in the beginning where the apostles are gathered and they um, have a dream. And in the dream, they're around the uh, around the altar offering sacrifice. And it says in there that that these who stand around the altar refer to themselves as priests. And then a number of times it keeps mentioning the apostles as priests, apostles, priests. And they have this dream and they go to Jesus, the apostles that is, and they say, who, who are these 12 men standing around the altar as priests? Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, well, that's you. And you're, you're sacrificing to a false God and you're leading all the Christians astray. So mm-hmm. what this text is, it's a commentary on the proto-Orthodox. It's, mm-hmm. it's Gnostic Christians looking at making the proto-Orthodox services and making fun of them. Oh, you call yourselves priests, yada, yada, yada. And in, in fact, in the Gospel of Judas, Jesus is seen laughing at the disciples for making the sacrifice at the altar. But the whole point here is that you have a second century source, a Gnostic source, making fun of the proto-Orthodox for being priests and for standing around an altar making sacrifice. Exactly. Which yeah. is the Eucharist. Um, so that's kind of a, um, not on the beaten path kind of source to show that early Christians in the second century are are continuing to understand themselves as, as priests. And then I would say, um, one of the definitive ones, I have a quote from Tertullian. So Tertullian is, um, writing, uh, this document, it's called the prescription against, um, uh, against heretics. And it's actually, scholars think, one of his earliest writings. So anywhere between 197 and 200. So we're still um, in, the, in the second century, late second century. But he, he writes this. Uh, and he refers to um, some women, uh, women heretics. The very women of these heretics, how wanton they are, for they are bold enough to teach, to dispute, to enact exorcisms, to undertake cures. It may be even to baptize. Their ordinations, the heretics, not the, not the females, the, the ordinations are carelessly administered, capricious and changeable. At one time, they put novices in office. At another time, men who are bound to some secular employment. At another, persons who have apostatized, apostatized from us to bind them by vainglory, since they cannot by the truth. Nowhere is promotion easier than in the camp of rebels, where the mere fact of being there is a foremost service. And so it comes to pass, and this is the important part, so it comes to pass that today one man is their bishop, tomorrow another. Today he is a deacon, who tomorrow is a reader. Today he is a presbyter, 
who tomorrow is a layman. For even a layman, for even on a layman do they impose the functions of priesthood. <laughs> so, so clearly for Tertullian, it's interchangeable. He can be speaking of the presbyterate and know that the presbyterate, presbyterate fulfills the function of priest. Yeah, exactly. And 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 that and again, you go from Tertullian into the third century with Cyprian. Oh yeah, I don't. I'm you not know. even going to mention <laughs> the third like, century yeah. because I'm not even going to mention the third century because it it becomes pervasive throughout the church to refer to um, Christian presbyters as priests. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think I think um, one thing that Protestants and Protestant scholars will bring up too is the language um, when you have this switch from presbyter to actual, you know, the word for priest, hieros. So it's kind and of sacerdos. like, yeah, and sacerdos in Latin. Um, maybe a word on that. Um, just because I know that that's that's probably spinning in some Protestants' minds. Well, the the answer is clear because they know that it fulfills the the synonymous synonymous functions of, right. of priesthood. Um, <laughs> right. But 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 there is also the sense there is a, there is de- I'm not saying there's not development in, in the cult. There is development mm-hmm. in the sacrificial cult. Mm-hmm. The earliest church understood the Eucharist as an offering, as a sacrifice. It's a little unclear how they understood that sacrifice. But by the third century, it's becoming very clear how they understood the sacrifice, and they understood it more in relation to Calvary. And you see that especially in Cyprian. And Mm -hmm. so when you're talking about the Eucharist being the representation, well, I'll use modern Catholic terms, the representation of a Calvary, you're talking about a serious immolation of the victim, okay? A representation of of a blood sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Um. So I would say that because of that that heightened sense of what this sacrifice is, I would say they're more apt then to begin referring or or um, uh, leaning on the word priest rather than presbyter. Yeah, and so the reason I was bringing that up too is that... Um, to, to trick me up, to throw me off? No, no, I think that was great, but um, <laughs> I think... I think it's funny because they can say you can you can read that in one of two ways. The Protestant way would be, well, see, like something went off track, right? And so now they're even using sacerdos and these these other words for it instead of elder, you know, um, forgetting, of course, what we just talked about—the whole prehistory of the term presbyteros and and the, and, and the concept of an elder in Israel. Um, but actually, it it shows the opposite. That the minute that that they're moving into the Gentile world, there was nothing wrong with using <laughs> these these more familiar terms for priest because it was natural to do so. As they're moving out of a kind of an Israelite sort of mentality, a Hebrew context, a Hebrew context yeah. they're moving right. out into a predominantly Gentile context. Well, those are the words that are synonymous with what they're used to using. Right. You know, exactly. so it, it's like um, again, kind of demonstrating the opposite well, point. Then there's always then there's always the point of um, well two points one point is that well the East never stopped calling their priests presbyters they still refer right. to them as presbyters but the other point is that the word priest itself is an English term that comes from the word presbyter right. <laughs> like we we derive the word priest from presbyter uh, mm-hmm. so again the synonymous is there even um, um, in the, in the syntax mm-hmm. uh, even in the um, etymology of the word itself uh, priesthood is built into the word. Pre- um, presbyter so and oh go ahead 
And oh, I'm just going to, and there was just, there was never a time, by the way, when they start to use the terms sacerdos in the Latin or iris in the Greek, there, there was never a time where there was a controversy about doing it. Right. Which you would think there would be if that, if that's, if that level of innovation was being introduced, if everybody in the early church understood that, no, man, we're not priests. Christ alone is the high priest and we're just and a everybody's bunch of elders. Priest, so it's a, yeah. it's a, a priesthood of believers. <laughs> We're yeah. we're just a bunch of teachers and elders, like in the like in the synagogue, right? If they understood it that way, the minute that somebody came in and said that they're a priest offering sacrifices, that would have shocked and horrified many people, and there would have certainly been some kind of a controversy somewhere. But there wasn't. Christian yeah, because, bishops walking around calling themselves yeah, priests and offering exactly. sacrifices because because you could argue that priesthood was at the center of Martin Luther's protest. Yes, which is why he Absolutely. he stripped the mass of sacrifice. And he stripped the title priest from the ministers in Lutheran churches or in the yeah. churches in Germany. So, yeah, I think that's a great point. There would have been yeah. controversy, and there isn't a controversy. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 the now heavily Greek and Roman Christian church was very comfortable using the synonymous term because that's what they were used to. Right, exactly. Uh, so so all, that, all that to say, we're concentrating so much on... on what a priest is here to show that priesthood is there from the beginning. You can't separate it out. And that's why there was a male presbyterate in the earliest, earliest church. Um, and, and that whole, that whole argument um, from liberal scholars, from Protestants, that priesthood wasn't there. It just isn't correct from our perspective. Right. Yeah. There's an unbroken continuity there. Now here's the thing I'll say. Um, it, it is, uh, it's almost uh, focusing on, on this question becomes a preoccupation of the scholarship for women in the early church. It, it, it actually does. And, and see, it just took up um, most of our, it just took up as an example, it took up, all, yeah, you know, a lot it, of this episode. Exactly. It's like, um, it is imposing 21st century concerns and categories, um, onto the early church and then finding the sources, you know, to justify one's position rather than putting aside our 21st century biases and entering into the mind as much as, as best as we can, which is, this is the discipline of the, of the historian to put aside your own biases and enter into the mind of these early people. What is it that they're thinking, especially when they're using language? Like, okay, what are they, when they're, why are, why are they not calling themselves rabbis? You know, yeah. like yeah. why didn't the apostles go around calling themselves rabbis and saying appoint rabbis in every single church, right? But they, they insist on this word presbyter. Well, well, okay, well then as the historian, let's go look at what that means and get into their mindset, you know? I feel like that's lacking in this area of research and, and historiography. And all that it ends up really doing is detracting from a lot of really fruitful territory where we could really be talking about what women are doing in the communities mm -hmm. that is contributing to the massive and exponential growth of this movement century over yeah. century. Can, can, can I, can I interject here for one, for a minute? Cause there's an irony here that we haven't marked out yet. Um, and that is, we just got through saying that the, their argument has been that with the development of priesthood, women get barred from being presbyters. Mm. That's an interesting argument also because in, 
in the third century, the third century is when we first start to see women pop up in the historical record acting as presbyters and the church sanctioning against it. <laughs> That's true. So yeah. it's actually when they're, when the, the priesthood is already almost fully developed that women start to f- come into that role and then the church has to uh, move against it. So there, so what we said is there's no literary evidence of any female acting as presbyter in the first two centuries. The first reference to a female acting as a presbyter comes from the third century and the first, like maybe, I think it's maybe year two, in the 220s, uh, some, some point, um, where we have uh, Bishop Vermilion, who's writing to Bishop Cyprian in North Africa, so an Eastern bishop writing to a North African bishop, speaking about a woman who dares to celebrate the Eucharist mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, there. And of course, she was kicked out. Um, she did it for a while, and then it didn't happen again. But the way he describes it, it, it was so absurd that that it would happen in the Proto-Orthodox Church. It was something so new um, and, and, and unbelievable that he had to tell Cyprian about it, that it, that it actually had happened. Yeah, um, and 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 we see it also in the um, the later offshoots of the what's you know considered the Montanist movement, um, or what they refer to themselves as the New Prophecy in Phrygia. But yeah. um, we'll we'll eventually get to that movement. But that's another that's another spot where you kind of see some of this popping up. But the point is that it's popping up at a time way later when even the canon of scripture is starting to be like formed, you know, yeah, a little yeah. bit of time. So, so what you see is that they don't make the argument for this when, when they're, when they're ordaining women to the presbyterate in this, in this later the era. The Montanists. Yes. They're not making the argument that this is what the apostles handed on to us. They make a scriptural argument, right? They don't say that like, this is the ongoing tradition of the church. Which, they, yeah, which would be the weaker argument. Yeah, yeah. They make an yeah. argument that like, well, look, and that's found, there's no male or female, you know. Yeah, and your your <laughs> so. reference that's found for our for our listeners. That's found in Saint Epiphanius. Yeah, in his list of heresies, he's talking about the basically the descendants of the Montanists, sects that mm-hmm. sects of a sect uh, that break off and ordain women to uh, to the priesthood and and appoint them as bishops. Uh, and he tells us that they refer to Saint Paul's letter to the Galatians, where he says that there is neither female, n- male, nor female. Right. Uh, and so they're making a scriptural argument, but Epiphanius is saying, but that's never been the practice of the church um, right. in general. Yeah. Um, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also mention the epigraphic evidence. Okay. So we've talked about um, in the first and second century, there's no literary evidence for a woman being named presbyter. Um, we see there's a reference in the third century to a woman who usurps the role and takes it over, and it shouldn't have happened. It's not the tradition of the church. Um, there are, there is epigra- epigraphic evidence uh, from the early church, and that's what the those two books we mentioned earlier really focus in on. Mm-hmm. Is is the stone? <laughs> what's written in stone? Uh, so what's written on tombs and those types of things? Um, you have for our, I'll just give the quick rundown for our listeners um, from the third to the sixth centuries. You have all but five references to a woman who then has carries the title of presbytera or a form of the word presbytera um, on their tomb. Okay, compare that to the references to females who carry the title of deaconess or deacon 
that's in the hundreds. We have all kinds of evidence of that. And we have literary evidence at the same time of the church sanctioning that role. We'll get to that in the third century. Um, here's what I say about the epigraphic evidence. That too is very tough to argue from. Uh, because number one, I just mentioned that of course there were women who were acting as presbyters. But the question is not were at women acting as presbyters, but were women acting as presbyters with the authority of the church behind them? Did, did the church ever sanction it? Right. And to answer the latter question, it, it, it's a no. Um, and so when you see a woman with the title of presbytera, it could very well be that they were seen as a priest, mm -hmm. right? But, but again, was it sanctioned by the church? So that's, that's number one. The other thing is that there's, let's see, I wrote these down because I didn't want to get, I didn't want to miss it. One, two, three, four, five, six other ways in the ancient world to interpret the term presbytera. We've already seen it in the New Testament, right? So presbytera can just mean an elder female, a female who led their little community or led a family and they, they referred to as the elder. Okay. So mm -hmm. it could just be title for an old, um, an older woman. The uh, second way, it could be referred to the wife of a presbyter. Now, we see this among the Greek Orthodox. Yeah, still to this day. Yeah. To this day. The presbyter's wife can be referred to as presbytera, mm -hmm. uh, the, the priest's wife, basically. You also see that usage in uh, early synods of the church. So the Synod of Auxerre, uh, you see it at the Council of Tours, and you see it at the Synod of Rome, all councils within the first seven centuries of the church. <clears throat> where the wife of the presbyter is referred to as presbytera. Um, so it could be that title usage on the epigraphic evidence. It could also refer to a leading deaconess. So an elder deacon or the, um, or the, or the elder widow of the community, of, of the Christian community. And we do see that usage being uh, shown to us in uh, Fulgentius. He's a canonist in the church. He uses it that way to refer to a elder deacon. And then St. Epiphanius uh, as well uses uh, knows of that usage, referring to a leading deaconess as a presbytera. Uh, the, let's see, one, two, three, fourth way would be just as an honorific title, okay? Mm. The elder. The fifth way would be um, an actual title. This is an interesting one. An actual title of an official in the church who has non-sacerdotal roles, non-priestly roles. This you actually see in um, an interesting church document, the Testamentum Domini, uh, chapter 135. Uh, and then finally, it could mean, it can refer to a heretical priest, right? <laughs> a priest who is outside the, outside the church. So you have only five inscriptions from all of the ancient world and you have a lot of different meanings to that word that could be applied to it. Mm -hmm. So again, this is why St. John Paul II said that the church doesn't have the authority mm -hmm. to ordain women to the priesthood. It just doesn't have the authority to do it. It's not our priesthood. Mm -hmm. It's Christ's. Right. And so from the very beginning, it, the, the priesthood of the presbyter is reserved... Um, to men. And it's it's too tough. It's too much to ask based on five inscriptions and no references in the canon of scripture. Right. 
Yeah. There's a, there's a tendency to um, look at the Christian movement only in terms of um, what they're doing that is new. You know, it's like they're doing something revolutionary. It's a revolutionary movement, you know, mm. but, but in many ways you look at it and you're like, it's actually a very, for lack of a better term, conservative movement <laughs> because um, you look at like the teaching, the moral teaching of Jesus, for instance, you know, where it's like, you've heard it said, but I say that whole, that whole paradigm. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, uh, a narrowing actually of, of the moral law. And, and when you look at the, the, the priesthood, you know, Jews at this time uh, in, in the, in the post temple context are moving away from priesthood and they're the ones who are moving to, we're just kind of teachers and, and commentators on the scriptures. Whereas the Christians are like, no, we're priests, <laughs> you know, we're like mm-hmm. in the temple, you know? Um, so there's a yeah. sense in which Christianity is, yes, it's revolutionary in the sense, in all the things that come with a Messiah fulfilling all of the hopes and promises of, of Israel. But it's, it's also, it's also uh, the recapitulation of something very ancient. You know, it's, it's the, um, the, the, the coming of the, 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 I guess, the reinstitution of the priesthood of Melchizedek, the primitive priesthood. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's not just that Christianity is a revolutionary movement. Um, it's also something that is drawing on everything that is, that is totally ancient about um, Hebrew religion. Right. So I think you were, I interrupted you, but I think, I think you were, you're wanting to get us, um, outside that context, that, that this power struggle that seems to be there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because talking about these early roles in terms of power struggle, it just sounds so conveniently like the Marxist dialectic of history, (laughs) you know, which, which we know has just been the air that Western academia breathes in and breathes out. Um, so it's, it's like every single time we look at the development of the Episcopate or, or we look at women in ministry or any of these kinds of questions, it's, it always gets put into a a framework of power power struggle. Like, yeah, between one, you know, one, someone who's subbing for the bourgeois and someone who's subbing for the proletariat, you know, women are the proletariat in this instance. And here's the bourgeois male hierarchy. Um, those categories obviously are being foisted upon the text here. So, um, it becomes kind of like exhausting, right? In a way. So let's put those aside. Let's get into their mindset. Like we just did here for the last hour, understand where they're coming from. And now let's move on. Let's move on from this issue and let's talk about what, women are really doing in the early Christian movement that is, that is helping move this thing along and, and to actually grow exponentially. We already mentioned how they're, they're, um, you know, uh, wealthy patronesses who are, who are, you know, sponsoring missionary journeys for missionaries. They're, they're hosting gatherings in their homes. They're, they're flipping their homes into churches for people to gather in. We have early Roman martyrs. Um, who is it? Uh, Lydia? I hope I'm hoping getting that right. But one of uh, one of the early Roman women martyrs who who dies, yeah. and she she actually donates her whole home uh, as as a place for for the gathering of Christians. And to this day, is um, a church in Rome. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's built right on top of it. Yeah, and and so one of the one of the one of those roles that we haven't mentioned yet for women in the early church was martyrdom. Right. The role the role of martyr. Um, so. I think we're going to see the true power play 
because um, I, I want to end with the story of Blandina. We're in, we're in the second century. I think mm-hmm. it would be appropriate to end on the story of this wonderful woman who's been, um, you know, preserved for us her story uh, throughout history. Uh, so I think we should. Well, I'll read the. I guess I'll I'll read it, or you have it in front of you. No, go ahead. Okay, so I'll read the the story of Blandina's martyrdom, and then we'll kind of um, just riff on the importance of it and, and uh, for, the, for the church, really for sure. the growth of the church and expansion of the church. Okay, so this can be found in um, Eusebius' uh, Ecclesiastical History, History of the Church. And there's a background here. Um, the background is that a bunch of Christians, I think there's like 48 of them, are captured. They're being tried for being Christians. They're being punished for being Christians. And they're brought before um, the governor, uh, uh, the Roman governor. And this is happening in in, in modern day Vienne, France. Yeah, Vienne and Lyon in, in Lyon. Gaul. Yep. Yeah, yep. So uh, I'll start. Uh, I'll start here. The whole fury of crowd, governor, and soldiers fell with crushing force on Sanctus, the deacon from Vienne, on Martyrus, very recently baptized, but heroic in facing his ordeal, on Attalus, who had always been a pillar in support of the church in his primitive, in his native Pergamum, and on Blandina, through whom Christ proved that things which men regard as mean, unlovely, and contemptible are by God deemed worthy of great glory because of her love for him shown in power and not in vaulted appearance. When we were all afraid, and her, Blandina's earthly mistress, who was herself facing the ordeal of martyrdom, was in agony, lest she should be unable even to make a bold confession of Christ because of bodily weakness. Blandina was filled with such power that those who took it in took it in turns to subject her to every kind of torture from morning to night, were exhausted by their very efforts and confessed themselves beaten. They could think of nothing else to do to her. They were amazed that she was still breathing, for her whole body was mangled and her wounds gaped. They declared that torment of any one kind was enough to part soul and body, let alone a succession of torments of such extreme severity. But the blessed woman, wrestling magnificently, grew in strength as she proclaimed her faith and found refreshment, rest, and insensibility to her sufferings in uttering the words, quote, I am a Christian. We do nothing to be ashamed of, end quote. Then the text goes on. Blandina was hung on a post and exposed as food for the wild beasts let loose in the arena. She looked as if she was hanging in the form of a cross, and through her ardent prayers she stimulated great enthusiasm in those undergoing their ordeal, who in their agony saw with their outward eyes in the person of their sister the one who was crucified for them, that he might convince those who believe in him that any man who has suffered for the glory of Christ has fellowship forever with the living God. As none of the beasts had yet touched her, she was taken down from the post and returned to the goal to be kept for a second ordeal, that by victory and further contests she might make irrevocable the sentence passed on the crooked serpent and spur on her brother Christians, a small, weak, despised woman who had put on Christ, the great invincible champion, and in bout after bout, 
had defeated her adversary and through conflict had won the crown of immortality. That's Blandina. And, and truly immortality. I mean, you think of... So, number one, Blandina here, if you didn't catch it, is a slave. She's a slave. It says that her earthly mistress was also suffering martyrdom along with her. Do we know the mistress's name? Do we know the <laughs> highborn? Do we know the highborn person's name? Right. It's not given it to us. It's not given to us. Blandina's name is given to us. A slave of a highborn Christian. Number one. Number two, she is the one who is filled with power. She has true power because she's acting in persona Christi. She's acting like Christ in going to her death. Bout after bout, it says. Okay, right. Um, interesting, interesting that um, it shows here the, the level of evangelism that's there, even in this early, early source, that, that it was Blandina by her witness and by her prayers that would, she was stimulating the confidence of all the other Christians in the arena, all the other 47 of them that were there. And yeah. Blandina the slave, mm -hmm. the lowborn, the nobody, the poor, is outshining all of them. And her name is the one that's preserved throughout, throughout history. What's interesting, I think people are always interested in... By that misogynistic church. <laughs> yeah. I think people are always interested in um, what made Christianity distinct in the early church. I think that, that, that's helpful for, uh, for a lot of people and for our listeners. Like, what made the Christians different, right? Um, a great scholar put it this way. There's three, there's three things that made the early church stand out to the Romans. Number one was that they valued poverty, okay? Number right. two, <laughs> number two, they valued celibacy and they rose above passions. And number three they rose above self-preservation, okay? The Romans and the Greeks, those are three things, demarcators, that they saw in Christians. Subversive. They saw that as, as subversive, yeah. yes. And all three of those things, right? So all three of those things are seen in the person of Blandina. Right. Blandina is the quintessential martyr. She's showing forth poverty and the value of, of the poor. She's a slave. She's a nobody. Mm -hmm. She's literally publicly breaking down the societal barriers that are there. She's dying side by side with the highborn, and the highborn are willingly dying side by side with Blandina. She is probably celibate. Her mistress is certainly celibate. And this gets to another point about this, why this story is so great. Because it shows you the, the influence of matrons. That the faith... See, we, we, were, we began this, um, these episodes on, on females and women in the early church um, talking about how women were the ones who, who ruled the home and the home economy, mm. and they oversaw the children and the slaves. And sometimes we think, okay, if the patron has a, has their, has a faith, okay, then the slaves, they just adopt it, right? There's no, but there's a real, a real... Um, latching on to the faith of the matron here. Mm -hmm. That Blandina 
makes it her own. That was the influence of Roman Christian matrons mm -hmm. in the home. And it speaks to how women in the early church helped to evangelize and help to spread the faith. Yeah. They didn't have to be apostles. They didn't have to travel across the Mediterranean like St. Paul. It was within the homes. Mm -hmm. A lot of conversion in the early church didn't happen horizontally. It happened mostly vertically. It happened right. within the homes of Christians. That's where Christians are continuing to gather through the second century. Mm -hmm. And it's it's women who, who raised the household, who taught the household, who raised slaves when they had them, or servants. And they taught them the faith mm -hmm. so well that people like Blandina were willing to give their life for the faith. Yeah, exactly. So vertical evangelization, matrons, slaves dying together is a big part of the success story of the church. And we, and we mentioned mistresses like this one here. I, no husband is mentioned. Right. Again, it sounds like another single woman who is showing forth the power of Christ, but another single woman who is going to die, and who do you think is going to get her property? It's going to be the church. Yeah. Widows in the early church, when they would pass away, would give their property to their new family, to the church. We know that that was happening. And mm -hmm. when it was a way for the church to build wealth. And when the church is able to build wealth, it's able to expand. And so it's no coincidence that the second to the third, third centuries is the great long century of expansion for the early Christian church. Right. It's women like this mistress. It's women like Blandina who are playing that pivotal role. Yeah. It's also interfacing with Roman concepts of uh, gender. Um, there's, there's a sense in which a woman martyr has a much greater, both offense on the one hand, and also impact on the predominant Greco-Roman culture. I would even say predominantly the Roman. Um, but, but the idea here, um, that is in the air in Roman culture is that, uh, men are associated with the mind and women are associated with the body. Um, so women are, are, um, creatures of passion and men are creatures of intellect. And so this is why even, uh, you know, the great martyrdom story of Greco-Roman pagan culture is Socrates, you know, the great, the great martyr hero, um, who cared so little for his own life and body and bodily comfort, you know, and cared so much for the truth that he was willing to die for it in such a way, you know? Um, well, now you have Christian women looking like a Socrates <laughs> mm -hmm. in these arenas. And this to for, all, Romans, for all the Roman society to see it. Yeah. And so, and, and this for the Romans is, 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 is very difficult category wise to know what to do with this. Cause it's not like they were killing slaves for doing something wrong and getting caught or for running away, or for stealing from their mistress, or for... They're, they're killing slaves because of some intellectual and ideological commitment. Like Socrates. Yeah. To the <laughs> truth. To the truth, yeah. And they're doing it without fear, right? And the, the, totally fearlessly, with no concern for their body. 
which again, like for them is like, well, women, I mean, you know, from, for everything for them, it's just like about the body. So mm-hmm. to see them transcending the passions and transcending the body and, and, and showing forth a commitment to something that looks like, you know, is associated to with, with intellect completely, um, on the one hand, like I said, offended them, which is why they tortured women sometimes worse than the men. You see the women constantly going through this, getting beat up by the animals, and then they're, they're put on the rack, and then, and then they were exhausted. They could have they had open wounds. And <laughs> the men, it's usually like, well, yeah, they did this, they did this, he's dead. <laughs> you know? um, Cut off his head early. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, but but you, more often, like you see the women going through series and series and series because they were so offended by this. But there's a flip side to that where eventually now they start to contemplate it and say, what is this message that is that is causing their women to be able to transcend their nature so that they're even acting like men? Yeah. So I think I think that's a, a, a good way to to end. Uh, like we said, we, we'll um, we'll come back to women in the early church um, when we come to the role of, of deaconesses. And that's going to be more third and fourth century um, mm-hmm. century stuff.